As you turn to Mark chapter 12, what you'll remember is that last week we ended, we left off the chief priests and the elders of Israel. They had questioned Jesus as to where his authority had come from. If you remember in Mark chapter 11, verse 20, 28, it says that they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority to do these things? They asked him twice. Anytime you see something repeated in the Bible, it's for emphasis. Uh, in that culture, if you would say things twice, and I think moms can relate to this, if you say things twice to your kids, it's because you really, really, really want them to hear it. And it's because they're not listening. Well, in this case, what you have is these Pharisees were questioning Jesus. Where did you get your authority? Who do you think you are? And he had, remember in the context, he had just knocked over the temple tables. He had completely pushed them over and he sent the money changers packing. And he did that because they were basically robbing the people blind that had come to the, the house of the Lord for sanctuary to worship. And they, because they came to worship, people were taking advantage of them in the temple trying to get money out of them. And many times when, when people come into churches, they feel like, well, uh, when are they going to pass the plate? And that's one of the reasons, culturally, why in the United States, there are lots of churches that don't pass the plate. And I know we can major on the ones that do, and you, know, you can look at TV evangelists and all the scandals that have happened. But the reality is, is that in any age, there are people trying to rip you off. Just because they come from within the church shouldn't surprise you at all. That's, that's, the, that's how man is. He's deceitfully wicked. And so what we do is we typically, we don't ask for an offering, we just have a box in the back. And the amazing part about that is that it takes, to me, as a pastor, more faith to see God provide in that way than it does to pass the plate every week. And for other people, they're called to pass the plate, and I know plenty of people that do, and I respect them. That's just what God's called them to. But what I want to point out before I even start teaching tonight is that we got this building, and we rent it monthly by what people have given already in the last eight months, and God's providing along the way. Now, do we have enough for the next six months? Not necessarily, but we know that where God guides, He provides. And so just as God guided Abraham into the wilderness and He guided His people all the way to Egypt to be taken care of for 400 years before He put them in the land of Canaan, so God can do that for us here and now today. He provides for our every need. He may not provide for our wants, but He will provide for our needs. And so as we grow as a church, what we'll do is we'll pray through those needs. I won't ask for money, and, uh, and, and I'll just pray that God would just provide for what He's guided us to do down in Arcadia Valley. And uh, as it, it made me scared to actually sign a lease to rent a building, but then I remembered how we got down here in the first place. God called us to come. We came for a couple months. God laid it on our hearts to move. He sold our house. He... he provided a house down here that we could buy in the same day and we moved down here and then because we moved down here God's blessed us not necessarily financially or anything we're just blessed to be here we love the people we love the atmosphere it's beautiful in fall the colors and so we're just feeling comfortable in what God's made us for and each person is made for something specific that God's called you to but now that I'm off of that tangent tangent I just wanted to point out that anything that we do as a church will not be done unless God provides for it. And so us moving to a building wasn't just because Bobby was selling a place, although that was you know, part of why we moved, but it was also because we felt like God was telling us, okay, I'm going to take care of you. Spread your wings. Go see if you can find a place. So we looked for six months before we found this one. And I just happened to walk by and see the for sale sign when I was getting parts for my car. 
And so that's how God works. He works very practically and yet very supernaturally. So Jesus had knocked over the temple tables and he had shown that he was very upset because his house, the house of his father, was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And what it became was a den of thieves is what he called it. And I think of a den, I think of snakes in a den. And you don't want to send your children into a den of snakes. In the same way, God didn't want to send his children into a place where they'd get ripped off. And so Jesus goes in there, he knocks over the temple tables, and he starts teaching as he always did when he had opportunity. Well, the, uh, the Pharisees come along and they say, wait a minute, why in the world are you teaching in our temple and who gave you the authority to do so? And so he answers them with a question. He says, I'll answer your question if you'll answer my question. Basically, he's questioning their authority. By what authority do you ask me? So we asked him the question. He says, John's baptism, was it of man or was it of God? Was it something God came up with or was it something that man came up with? And they reasoned among themselves, according to chapter 11, verse 31, it says, uh, they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say John's baptism was from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say it was from men, they feared the people for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and they said to Jesus, we don't know. And the reality of their situation was is they didn't know. They didn't know who had God's authority and who had man's authority. No one can know that except God himself, right? You can judge people's works and you can look and you can kind of just like you look at a fruit tree to see if there's fruit coming from it. But the reality is is that these people had no authority that was given to them. What they had was public opinion. They'd been voted in, if you will. But the same people that vote you into a position of promise, not promiscuity. <laughs> That's not the word. <laughs> the same people that can vote you into a place of prominence can also vote you out, just like you can politicians. So if your authority comes from man, it can be taken away by man. So it shows that you really don't have any authority. But the cool thing is, is that Jesus, in asking them this question, showed them who really had authority. It was Jesus himself. So the spiritual leaders of the nation were completely clueless concerning the things of God. So because they chose to remain silent and not answer, Jesus decided to remain silent and not answer their question. And I thought that was pretty fair. But instead, he spoke to them in a parable explaining that God has, throughout the history of Israel sent messengers to communicate to them over and over again, and they treated the messengers harshly. They beat them, and in some instances, they killed them. And after that, God sent His only Son to convey His heart to His people, but when He sent, them, sent Him, they rejected Him, because they did not know God as well as they thought they did. And many times, that's what happens to people that have been given much insight into Scripture. They've been in church their whole life, and so because of that, they think they know God. They put them in a box. They have this little, okay, well, there's God over there. That's, that's who He is. It can't be any different. And they're not open to God revealing to Him through His Word that He is outside of their understanding. If God is small enough for you to understand every particular thing about Him, He's not God. He's smaller than you. He's small. But God is big. He's beyond our reaching. But at the same time, He's revealed to us Himself, in His Son, in Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews chapter 1, it says, in these last days, He's revealed Himself to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So because of that, Jesus 
responds to these guys and shows them that they have no authority. And he also converses with these chief priests and these elders. Now, he didn't have a lot of patience for them, but he still did take the time to talk with them. So though the chief priests and the elders get a bad reputation, they did have some good questions. If they had really wanted to know the answer, however, they, those questions would have led them to the ultimate truth that is the most important truth anyone who can have revealed to them, that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, that He is, in fact, the Son of God, and that He did die, that He rose again. But what they saw was some guy coming along and blaspheming. I was reading this morning in my daily devotion where um, Jesus has died, He's resurrected, and that now He's revealing Himself to His disciples and as he does that, some of them are all together and some of them it's just one-on-one. -on -one. And he talked to the two on the road to Emmaus and he gave them this Bible study I wish I had been a part of in Matthew chapter 28. But what I thought was interesting this morning is even in my heart, as I heard that the disciples were worshiping Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, it kind of gave me a, a cringe a little bit. I'm like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to worship any man. But then I realized, wait a minute, no, this is Jesus. This isn't just any man. And so I thought how easy it is for us to get used to Jesus, to get used to who we think he is. Even when we've read his scriptures over and over again, and then we realize again, wait a minute, he's God. He's not just some guy. So Jesus, in fact, excuse me, but since they did not really know, want to know the truth, these Pharisees, these uh, chief priests, the leaders of the nation of Israel uh, spiritually, since they didn't really want to know the truth that would set them free from their dead religion and their rituals and their heartless repetitions, they resolve instead to ask controversial questions. They're going to inspect him. They want to see how he'll respond to their prodding. Does he really measure up to who we think should be in charge? So they try to dig up some sort of opinion of his that they can find some sort of charge to put against him. They want to find the dirt. I think it was in the, in the early 1900s, they had reporters that they started calling muckrakers. They basically would stir the waters. They wanted to find out if there was something wrong with people, especially politicians. And so these newspaper article writers, they'd go out and they'd, they'd talk to these guys when they were in public, and they would try to get them to say something stupid, like today's media does, and then they would put it in some sort of publication. That's what we do, right? We want to find fault in people so we can show, hey, they're not really that great. That's not a bad thing, because when you find out people are faulty, then you don't worship them. You don't have the tendency to, to try to put them up on a pedestal. You realize they're just sinful, just like me. <laughs> Anybody that spends more than five minutes with me is going to find that out about me. I'm either going to say something silly, I'm going to uh, talk about somebody when I shouldn't be. It's just human nature. It's not what God intends for me. I should grow. God should convict me of my sin, because that's what it is. It's not a mess up. It's sin, but I should grow from that. I should become more like Jesus. I should be without fault. And so Jesus here is going to get prodded by these two different groups. Uh, there will be four different questions that get asked, but we'll only address two tonight for time's sake. So verse 13, finally. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. So then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. And care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now I read it that way because they're like, they're buttering him up. They're like, oh, you're great. We love you. 
You teach the word of God in truth. You fear no man. You're you're holy. You're good. You're a great teacher. Should we pay taxes? (laughs) That's a burning question for everybody, right? Hey, wait a minute. Can we get out of this? Is there a religious loophole? That'd be great. And I think it's interesting because oftentimes people get caught up in these kinds of questions. It's a good question. Don't get me wrong. It's a good question. Hey, if there's a loophole, I want it. So Jesus responds. But before we get there, uh, I think many people come to Jesus with these kind of reservations. Many even look for a church to go to based on their political stances, ideas about capital punishment, and even taxes. And though we can find out what God thinks about these things by reading Scripture, they're not really the most important issues that we'll face in this life. They're important, but not the important thing. And these guys are hung up on this. These things ultimately will affect how we live our lives, but they do not affect why we live our lives, or they shouldn't affect why we live our lives. Who Jesus is and what he did and does will have an effect on how we live our lives, and this is the one they will avoid the most during the next section. They'll avoid the question of who Jesus actually is, and they'll try to ask questions about taxes. And they're going to ask a question about the Old Testament law. But why are they asking about whether or not to pay taxes? Well, in order to answer this question, we must take notice at who is present while they're asking the questions. Who's the jury they brought along with them? Because they're very subtle about this, but they've got this group with them. See, it says there uh, that they brought with them the Pharisees, but also the Herodians. So who are the Herodians? I think it's important we know that because then we know why they're asking the question. Well, during the time of Jesus, there were, a, there were certain groups. We've talked about the Pharisees. The Herodians will be one we'll talk about. And then there was the Sadducees. These held positions of authority and power over the people. They were kind of leaders. Some of them were self-proclaimed, and some of them were real deal leaders, you know, uh, political leaders. The Herodians held political power. And most scholars believe that they were a political party that supported the king of the day, King Herod Antipas. The Roman Empire's ruler over much of the land of the Jews from about 4 BC to about 39 AD. So the Herodians favored submitting to the Herods. And this is, you know, they were, he was a ruler during the day of Jesus. So the Herodians and the Pharisees couldn't get along on anything. The Herodians were politically motivated. The Pharisees were motivated by religion. And so because of that, those things seem to have a clash. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed that. There's this clash between religion and politics. And everybody says, they, never the twain they shall meet. Well, just because of the nature of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, they meet. You know, It's not something that we're supposed to major on, but at the same time, your belief structure affects everything that you do. So your politics will be affected by your walk with Jesus. I pray that your politics are not, affect, are not what affects your walk with the Lord, but your walk with the Lord affects your politics. That being said, uh, Jesus here responds to them. But this support of Herod compromised the Jewish independence in the minds of the Pharisees. They had, a, a, you know, they had their iron in the fire of politics, and so it, it affected the way that the Jewish nation was able to work. One of the ways this affected them is the Jews were not allowed to have their own system of capital punishment. They couldn't punish their own offenders that in their law said they needed to stone them to death. 
And so they took away the ability to punish those who were in, uh, who were deserving capital punishment according to the law, because they were a part of Rome. They didn't have the ability to, the authority to, you know, to do capital punishment. But one thing that they did unite, that didn't unite these two people, was opposing Jesus. If you've ever seen different parties or different religions or different groups of people, they never get along on anything. But all of a sudden, if there's somebody, if they want to go against anybody together as a group, it will always be Jesus. It's been like that since the beginning of time. So they were okay with working together on this. And Herod himself wanted Jesus dead, including, uh, according to Luke chapter 13. And the Pharisees had already hatched plots against him to kill Jesus. So they joined efforts to achieve their common goal. This is why the Pharisees just happened to invite the Herodians along for this conversation. So the question stands, shall we pay or shall we not pay? Verse 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, that they were two-faced and they had hidden motives, he said to them, why do you test me? Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus answered and he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Uh, I looked up this word just a few weeks ago because it was in the study, and the word marveled there means that they were stupefied. They were dumbfounded. They couldn't believe that he answered this way. They thought he was going to say yes or no. That's what they were looking for, right? Or it's like, Lord, I have a question for you. Will you answer it my way? No. <laughs> he says, and it just says that they were completely marveled. He doesn't answer their question. He responds to these men by asking them to bring him a coin. And upon receiving it, he looks at it. And they said, it's Caesar's inscription. It's his image. And instead of dealing with their question of whether, whether or not they should pay taxes, Jesus just tells them to give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. I think this is great. Because I think oftentimes we think we have things that are ours, but really they're not. We just hold them for a time. Think about the dollar or the penny or whatever you got in your pocket, if there's anything. Think about it. How, how long can you hold on to it? Until you've got to buy something with it. And then you exchange it for something you need. The same way is if you have a 401k or if you have a savings account. How long can you really hold on to it? Until you die. And then it goes to somebody else, whoever's there. And so he responds to them. I think it's funny. <laughs> he, he basically deals with the question like you would deal with an elementary school fight over a backpack. He's got my backpack. No, it's my backpack. Well, whose name is on it? Oh, Johnny. Give it back to Johnny. You know, he deals with them like you deal with elementary kids. And so he responds to them, and they're in awe. So then a second group comes to him, verse 18. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. That's what they believe, that there's no resurrection. They came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, I read that and you're like, what? That's weird. Where did that come from? So another group, this group called the Sadducees, comes along to ask Jesus a question. They're also trying to find fault in him. So the Sadducees, they start their question by stating a truth that is, in fact, found in the Bible. 
It's a truth. And so it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. I'll just read one verse. It says, this was in their law. If a brother, excuse me, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. This would work out really good if you had a younger sibling that didn't die before you and was really shy. <laughs> he wasn't into going out and meeting people, so he's like, well, you know, okay, so maybe that's a weird thought. <laughs> but, you know, think about it. If you, if you had a couple brothers and one was really shy and he never married, it'd work out for him, right? He's like, hey, I didn't have to go date anybody. I don't know. I was always shy, so that's just me. Just a personal note. <laughs> Sorry. But anyway, in the law, God made provisions, and he, his heart towards widows and orphans is very strong. So he, he made a provision for a woman who was widowed. If a man was to pass away and leave behind a wife without them having any children to pass on their inheritance, God set it up so that the next of kin, the kinsman redeemer is what it's called, if he had a brother that was not already married, that is, should marry his brother's wife so that he could give her children for his brother, so that the family name would continue, and also so that any land they own would continue to stay in the family. This was a big deal because in the nation of Israel, they were always supposed to have the land. They, were, they inherited it, not from man, but from God. They went in and they, they took over the land, but it was the land that God gave them. And so to keep it in the nation of Israel was always God's plan. So he set up laws that would make that work out where they didn't even have to do anything except just obey what he said. They didn't have to worry about legalities. They just had to follow what he said. Now, it's, it's, uh, it's important to note that the man was not completely obligated to fulfill this duty, but it was a great dishonor if he did not fulfill that duty. I think there was something where like, he had to take off his sandal and hand it to the woman, and he was going to be known as the man who took his sandal off. It's kind of weird. <laughs> and they would spit on his foot. Yeah, and it was basically like to show him, hey, you're kind of a turd. You should have done that. You should have fulfilled that vow. You know, but the idea is that he didn't have to do it. He wasn't obligated. It was something you could do in order to honor his brother. Now, not all brothers get along, so sometimes that doesn't work out, right? So anyway, um, actually, this, there's an example of this taking place in Scripture. If you want to read it on your own, it can be found in the book of Ruth. If you're looking for an amazing story to read during this week, check this out. One of the most beautiful love stories in all the Bible. Ladies, if you're into reading love stories and you haven't ever read this book, Ruth, it's amazing. Basically, this Gentile woman was married to a Jewish man. His, her husband died. And then when her mom came back to Israel from where they lived, she came with. And when she came, she met this man named Boaz who took care of her. And he actually ended up being relation, not close relation, none of that craziness. But he was, he was the kinsman redeemer, and basically if he would marry her, he took her under his wing and provided for her. And really what it's supposed to be is a picture of how Jesus did that for his Gentile bride, you and I. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not Jewish. So apart from Jesus dying for the sins of the world, I wouldn't be here. God chose to bless all nations through the Jewish nation, and so that's the way that he did it. So anyway, this law was well known among the Jews, and so they used this as a backdrop to a hypothetical question. This isn't a real story. They just brought it up. Hey, what if this happens? You know, your kids are always, if you make rules for them, they're like, yeah, but what if? 
Yeah, but what if? No, you can't be out past 10 o'clock. But what if this, this, and this happens? They're always looking for a loophole. And so these men are doing the same thing. Verse 20. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died. Nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. And so the seven, it just goes, kind of rushes ahead. All seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise... Whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Now, before we read Jesus' response, what I want to point out to you is something about the Sadducees, this particular religious group. um, They believed some certain things that the Pharisees didn't, so there was a division there. But number one, they denied the existence of angels. Number two, they did not believe that the souls of men live on forever, which is not true, but that's what they believed. Number three, they did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that there was a resurrection of the dead. Now, they did good in that they rejected the oral traditions of man that came from when they were in the captivity. They didn't believe in the oral traditions. They believed in the written word of God, but they believed in specific books. uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books, the books of Moses. They held to those strictly. They said, this is the inspired word of God. We will not stray from this. And so they did good in that, but they didn't know it. They thought that they believed in something, but they didn't even know what they said they believed in. And I'll point that out here in a second. So their question concerns the marriages of the men and women in the story after the resurrection. But these guys don't even believe in the resurrection. So they're not asking a question because they really want to know the answer. They're asking a question trying to trip them up. The only reason these men asked about this was to discredit the teaching that all who die will one day rise from the dead. And so verse 24 says, Jesus answered and he said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures, which they said they believed in wholeheartedly, and you do not know the power of God. Jesus responds by explaining to them that they're wrong, but then he explains to them why they're wrong. How many times have you been told, you're wrong about something? But nobody gave you how to be right. Okay, I'm wrong, but tell me what, how to be right. You know, what is the, the right answer? So verse 25 said, For when they, people, rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read? Now, I also, always want to point this out because when Jesus is really getting onto the Pharisees and the Sadducees, one of the ways that he gets a gets a little jab in at him as he says, have you not read? Because their whole existence was to be reading the scriptures, to know them inside and out so they could be an authority on the scriptures. They said, Jesus, where do you get your authority to do these things? And he's saying, where do you get yours? You're supposed to be an authority and you're not because you're not in the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. So, He says, uh, but concerning the dead that they rise, verse 26, have you not read in the book of Moses? That's the book they claim to believe in. In the passage of the burning bush. Now, who in here doesn't remember the passage of the burning bush? That's where Moses comes up and he sees this burning bush that's not consumed, but it's on fire. That would creep me out. I'd want, I don't know if I'd go up and talk to it. But he goes up and, and the Lord speaks to him through that burning bush. And here's what he says. How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
He's not the God of the, of the dead, Jesus says, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So Jesus is explaining here, he's saying, not only do we rise from the dead at the resurrection, but when we do, because we do, we will no longer marry or be given in marriage, like happens now in this life. Then he explains, using their other misunderstanding about Scripture, he explains to them that we will, after the resurrection, be like the angels, which I think is pretty cool. But we will not marry, we won't procreate, there won't be any of that going on. Uh, that will, that's only for here. But then in verse 26 and 27, Jesus explains the resurrection by referencing one of the first five books of the Bible, the ones they claim to believe, right? Exodus. Since those are the only books that the Sadducees believe are given by inspiration of God. He quotes from one of the books they claim to believe in, and he shows that they really do not know the scriptures they claim to believe in. Because right there in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and that's where he's quoting from, he says, God, while speaking to Moses from the burning bush, referred to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, by the time Moses heard God in the burning bush in the desert there, I want to point out that Abraham had long since died. He was dead. And Isaac had long since died, who was his son. And then Jacob had died 400 years previous to this conversation that they're having. Therefore, God is pointing out through Jesus here that these men had died, but notice there that he says, I am the God of those men, not I was the God of those men. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. See, we are, they're still alive. They're not dead. So God's not the, the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You see, he still is their God because they're still alive. And the Apostle Paul addresses this same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bible, please, please turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul addresses the Corinthian church concerning the resurrection because they were very carnally minded. They only believed in stuff if you could taste it, if you could touch it, if you could see it. But the problem is, is that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen according to Hebrews chapter 11. So we can't believe just everything that we see. I was reading this morning about the, the disciple Thomas where he said, Lord, I, you know, he, he told the other disciples, he said, I won't believe that he's resurrected unless I see him. So then when Joseph, Jesus shows up and he says, look at me, look at the scars in my hand. Look at the, the hole in my side. Touch him if you want. I'm here. So what he says there in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 12 says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's a good question. They're still dealing with the question down the road when the Corinthian church is there. Verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It's pointless. You're still in your sins if Christ didn't die and raise from the dead. If he didn't raise from the dead, there's no resurrection power. You haven't been forgiven of your sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ when he rose from the grave and he appeared to one 
two, and then 500 people, the resurrection was really like a receipt. You go to the store. And how do you prove to your wife that you actually did spend $100 on groceries? You give her the receipt. You say, look, I paid in full. This is my receipt. So in the same way Jesus died and then he rose again, the only way that we know that he actually, his payment for our sins was actually accepted is that he rose again. Because if he didn't raise again, then he was just another dude that died. And that's pointless. Our hope is futile if our hope is in some dead Savior. Because he wasn't able to save even himself. And so verse 20 in that same chapter says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, Adam, by man also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Do you know that God, when he redeems us, it's not just that he forgives us of our sins, but he also redeems our bodies. There will be a, a physical resurrection. He will make these bodies that are broken down and, and messed up and, you know, just we, we beat on them. He's going to make them all that they were ever supposed to be at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you guys, but that's hope for me because even for me at 30 years old, I'm hurting. Not like a lot of people are. I'm still up and around and I'm breathing and I wake up every morning. But still, when you wake up in the morning, get out of bed, you're like, oh, you have to wipe the stuff out of your eyes and you just got to get going. You need that coffee or whatever it is that gets you going. But our bodies are wearing out. But the Lord, he's going to redeem us. And he already has redeemed us. We've got the first fruits of his redemption. He gives us his Holy Spirit. But from that point on, we're still in these bodies and we struggle against sin and temptation. But there will be a day where that will no longer be taking place. We'll be with him. We'll have our new bodies. We'll be glorified just as he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we'll be glorified because of what he has done. All of that, and they still haven't gotten to the real issue. They've asked him about taxes, which is a good question. But then they've asked him about all this other stuff, about marriage, resurrection. But really what they're doing is they're inspecting him. What they don't realize is one day they'll be inspected by him. He will judge. He will look at their lives and say, great, you asked me about taxes. You got to talk to my son, and that's what you wanted to ask Jesus? Have you ever heard somebody say, hey, when I get to see the Lord, I've got some questions for him. Even believers, they're like, you know what? I don't agree with the way he handled this or what he allowed in my life. They're like, when I see him, I'm going to ask him about this, this, and this. And I'm just like, I don't think he will. I think you're going to see him, and your every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I think that's what's going to happen. They're going to bow the knee, and they're going to say, holy, holy, holy. You are good. You're real. You're everything that I hope for. I'm sorry. And do you notice what it says that when we see him face to face is that our tears will be wiped away by him. He's going to see our tears and going to wipe them away. Why do you think that those that see him for the first time will be crying? I think there will be sorrow over sin. I think there will be brokenness over realizing they wasted a lot of time doing stuff that didn't matter. But what I want to point out is that at that point, even though, even though, We'll be convicted over our sin because we'll be in the presence of a holy God and Jesus Christ, his son. What he does is so graceful. He goes, take that tear and wipe it away. He wipes our tears away. Even the ones that we deserve to have. 
And He gives us fullness of joy. The Psalms say that in His presence is fullness of joy. So let me ask you, do you spend most of your time when you're praying? Or even when you're just spending your time complaining and wishing God would fix your situation? Or do you spend your time looking, looking at the Lord and saying, Lord, why did you forgive me in the first place? Thank you for opening my eyes. I was once a Pharisee. And I, I'm here today to tell you I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was one of those guys. I thought I had it made. I was doing all the right stuff. I grew up in a family where we never did anybody wrong. You don't lie. You don't cheat. You don't you know, cuss, chew, go with girls that do, all those things. But the funny thing is, is apart from Christ, all those things are just they're filthy rags. I can't earn my way to heaven. And what these guys are doing is they're trying to inspect this guy because they feel like they're religiously righteous. But the point is, is that Jesus doesn't play around. He doesn't answer their silly questions. What he does is he points out the fact that their questions are pointless. What do you, the one thing we'll be judged on on the day of judgment is not going to be whether or not we paid our taxes. Now, as Christians, we should pay our taxes. Obey the laws of the land. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And it hurts. Don't get me wrong. That lives out a lot harder than it, than, it, than it actually you know preaches. But the reality is, the one thing that we'll have to deal with on the day of judgment, we get to be in the face of Christ, is what did you do with my son? What did you do with the Savior? The one I sent to redeem you, to save you from your sin. What did you do with him? Did you spend all your time giving excuses and asking about taxes and marriage? Or did you just trust what he taught and try to follow him? Did you follow my son? That's all he's asking us to do. He's not asking us to be super saints. He's asking us to be disciples. I don't know about you guys, but it's encouraging to me when I read about Peter and Paul and those guys and how much they screwed up. Because I go, there's hope for me. So there's hope for just about anybody. There's hope for me. That's what Paul came to the conclusion of. He said, I'm the least of all saints. And then he went to the point where he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. And God saved me anyway. So uh, anyway... Father, thank you that you are so patient with us. Thank you that you are willing to listen to our silly questions and you still, at the end of the day, you died for our sins. You died to pay the way so we could be brought back into fellowship with your Father, Holy God. And thank you that you did it all the while while you were actually Holy God in the flesh. So Lord, I pray that tonight that we wouldn't be like the Pharisees, we wouldn't be like the, the Herodians, that we wouldn't be like uh, the Sadducees, that we wouldn't be like us, Lord, that we'd become more like you. That we'd put away our petty questions and we would just decide to go all in and follow you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. To lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you and let you direct our paths. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here tonight that you directed them here and they're not, they're not yours. They haven't professed the name of Christ. They haven't confessed it. They're a sinner and that you're holy and they need you. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't leave this building tonight without doing so. But I also pray for us that have been walking with you, that you wouldn't become so commonplace to us that we would get used to you. But we would realize that you are holy God, that you are good, and that you are definitely worthy of being worshipped and praised and and ultimately glorified by us just following you and obeying your commands. Not because we have to, but because we've been freed up to be able to do it. So, Lord, uh, thank you for this time. Thank you once again for providing this place that we can gather and learn about you. And, Lord, make us disciples. 
Make us those that imitate Christ. Lord, show your son to the world, to Arcadia Valley. We'll start small, to our families. Show Jesus Christ to our families and to this valley uh, by empowering us to, to imitate him. Just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.